This is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell and our first guest this week. May not have seen the end of the world, but she did see the end of Iraq, having lived there in the years leading up to the U.S. war on Iraq, which began 20 years ago last month. An Iraqi who lived in the United States, but her family moved back between the two U.S. wars on Iraq when she was still school age. In Iraq's school system, she learned to love Saddam and see him as a father figure, Baba Saddam. She lived through the fear of a pending war that here in the, U- in the U.S. we were being told was absolutely necessary and completely unavoidable. But we now know that it was not only unnecessary, but very avoidable. She and most Iraqis saw Saddam's regime as that of a madman. But to Iraqis, he was their madman, one they understood as their own. As the phrase goes, better better the devil you know than the devil you don't. She witnessed the collapse of the dictatorship and in its wake the massive looting, including that of national treasures. Firsthand, she experienced the U.S. soldiers as kind and young people, just like her, then witnessed their devolution into being hate-filled, violent and driven by vengeance. Today in Iraq, she sees nothing that is sustainable, nothing that can be fixed in a government run by corrupt thugs. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, Rasha Al-Akidi, who posted the article, Living and Reliving, the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. Two decades on, I can recall almost every detail of the American occupation and the years that followed. You can find her writing at newlinesmag.com. She is a researcher and analyst of contemporary Iraqi politics and political Islam. Her commentary and publications focus on armed groups, radicalization, Middle Eastern geopolitics, and contemporary Iraqi politics and society. Previously, Rasha was a 2018-2019 Robert A. Fox Fellow in Foreign Policy Research Institute's Middle East program, where she served as a fellow researcher and George Washington University's at George Washington University's program on extremism. Rasha was on the editorial board at Al Mesbar Research and Study Center in Dubai, where she served as a researcher and security consultant. She was also an analyst at Inside Iraqi Politics, as well as senior analyst and the head of the non-state actors program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute. Prior to joining the institute, Rasha was the editor in charge of Urfa Satak a U.S.-based platform that offers insights into post-conflict communities in Iraq and Syria through personal digital storytelling, essays, and photo collections. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic, The Independent, The National, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Associated Press, BuzzFeed, and The American Interest. She tweets at her name, Rasha Al-Aqidi, A-Q-E-E-D-I, and you should follow her there. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you? How was your weekend? Uh, the theme of this past weekend was music. I caught uh, probably, I, I consider them the best bluegrass band uh, touring right now. They're 
group called Henhouse Prowlers. They got their start in Rogers Park and have kind of gotten big since then. No you, kidding. So where'd you see them? Uh, the uh, space in Evanston. Yeah. So they're they're back home. Um, yeah, great show. I just found out that the guy behind the space is also involved in the Salt Shed. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I huh. think it's a consortium. I think it's numerous people who are involved. So uh, how was the show? I've never been to the space. To space is that uh, a good location? Yeah, it's a great little venue, very intimate, and um, you know it's always good to see the boys. Um, I've been following them since their Redline Tap residence days. So, oh, no kidding. Yeah, they used to go by Sex Fist. I don't know if you've seen their that stuff all around Rogers Park back in the day, but. <laughs> And House Prowlers, that's yeah. a great name for a band. And yeah. so is the Red Line Tap even there anymore? Did it go no, under with the Heartland? It's uh, being turned into condos now. Uh, that's what I thought. I thought that both went down at the you same know. point in time. So my weekend was wonderfully event-free. Not much happened worth m- mentioning other than I overheard some teenagers in the park <laughs> gossiping about another teen. One said, well, you know he's a vegan. A second, <laughs> a second less informed teen said, who's a vegan? The first teen replied, Johnny's a vegan, to which the second teen replied, What's wrong with him? <laughs> I also overheard someone using the phrase, I didn't even touch my Louisiana today. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. But I want to use that phrase like if I ever go out to eat Cajun food, if I haven't had my gumbo yet. Uh-huh. I didn't even touch my Louisiana yet. <laughs> I, I didn't even touch my Louisiana today. So many questions. I, I have no idea. What, I discovered that the frozen kosher food aisle at the grocery store is not all that kosher as they were covered with brown construction paper and uh, the coolers were and had the sign, not kosher for Passover. Huh. There's another level. Is it level kosher of, for other times? Apparently. Like super kosher? I know, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> and I stumbled upon the annual march on Devon Avenue commemorating the martyrdom of Imam Ali observed on the 21st day of Ramadan, which commemorates the day, uh, the death of Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, also known as Hazrat Ali, who was the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad. That It happens every year right outside our front door here at our studio. And despite witnessing this event several times, I still have no idea who Imam Ali is, and I should know, and I wish I had some background in Islamic history. That's certainly not anything that I learned in school. What I do know is they used to parade an oversized uh, oversized coffin down the street while others carried these like two-story tall white banners splattered with red paint, but not this year. I also know that the event has a lot of singing of prayers and men dressed in uh, red, chest-thumping in unison with the rhythm of the prayer. So it was just another weekend in the neighborhood. More important than any of that, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, who would you like to see indicted and why? Who would you like to see indicted and why? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it at us uh, at thisishellradio, or you can send it to me via email at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff, the t-shirt, the chuckers, or winter cap, the coffee mug, the face covering, or the face mask, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from this, this century, as well as the tote bag. Yes, there is a This Is Hell tote bag. And you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hang over this is hell and will has this week's 
Hangover Cure. Let's see if he figured out how to pronounce it. Oh, the Danes in there, silly little language. <laughs> oh. This week's Hangover Cure is Flastiskeg Sandwich. Oh, look at you. <laughs> you practiced. I did. Thank God. Uh, in January, uh, CNN Travel posted the story the morning after what people around the world eat and drink to beat a hangover, which was a collaborative effort from writers Joel Porter and Stacey Lestow, because when you get this big of an assignment, you're definitely going to need two fully trained journalists. <laughs> uh, Porter and Lestow report that in Copenhagen, Flastiskeg uh, Sandwich, which is roast pork sandwich, uh, is like gold to the irritable and the hungry. Uh, Danish cuisine, often associated with beautifully presented minimalist plates of foraged ingredients, is actually more diverse. The country's signature sandwich is all about messy, delicious indulgence. Think thick slices of roasted and grilled pork neck nestled in a soft bun with crisply crackling pickled cucumbers, red cabbage, and spicy mayonnaise. Have a flaskig <laughs> no. worse at it every time. Two for three. Flasky steg sandwich um, to help ward off a hangover. And Koidbien's hoker, an outdoor kiosk in the city's meatpacking district, is popular for a reason. Or make it your first stop when you wake up with a massive headache and hunger. That makes this week's hangover cure. Flastiskeg sandwich. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank very, you so much. Very for impressive. Read, very impressive. <laughs> you can email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And we heard from a listener who was admittedly late with their answer to last week's question from Hell for Listeners, which was what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? They were also not happy with the weekly hangover cure. Ronan writes, yeah, yeah, I know this is late, but I couldn't resist sending it in anyway. My shock and awe for this is hell we live in would be one massive dose of acid or MDMA into the America water supply. It'd be a very different country in about 12 or 14 hours. A question, Chuck, is any of your merch made for, or made of or from hemp? Longtime listener here. Still trying to find a dime to send your way. Sign me, Ronan. But before I could even answer Ronan's question about our merchandise being made of hemp or not, and to the best of my knowledge, it is not. However, hemp might be involved in the process. I don't know. We got another email from Ronan. Ronan writes, Chuck, as an addendum to my first missive, Hearing some, actually most of them, of the hangover cures, I can't help but wonder if the authors even know what or, or ever experienced a real hangover. If you can get out of bed and manage to find the bathroom, it's an encouraging start to the day. If you can find your face with a splash of cold water, that will help matters along. So now stumble around to the kitchen, put a piece of bread in the toaster, either heat up some coffee or pour out some V8 tomato juice or orange juice now add two fingers worth of either vodka into the juice or whiskey into the coffee toast should be done sit down nibble on the toast drink your juice or coffee and decide if you can afford to take the day off of work or if you can or need to just mail it in because that is all you'll be good for ronin so care of ronin this week we have two hangover cures that pork roast sandwich from Denmark, or if you prefer, Ronan's suggestion, add two fingers worth of either vodka into uh, V8 or orange juice or whiskey into coffee. Sit down, have your spiked juice or coffee while nibbling on toast. 
If you have any thoughts about the show that you would like to share with us, send them in and we will likely share them on air. If you offer your guest or topic suggestions, you can do that too. And if we have your suggested guest or cover your suggested topic on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview. Coming up, we will hear from an eyewitness to the Iraq War, which began 20 years ago last month. Will will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will also tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. There's no past inside the present this week uh, when, where historian, when and where historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper offers the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Uh, Sebastian will return to the show next week. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. But all of us definitely need to stare back at the abyss of war. The seamless bottom, seemingly bottomless chasm. The profound gulf between the viewpoints many have here in the United States about the invasion and occupation of Iraq that began 20 years ago last month and what the reality was on the ground for the Iraqis who witnessed the onslaught. Here to help us have a better understanding of an unnecessary and completely avoidable war the Bush administration and our supposedly free press lied us into, Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, Rasha Al-Akidi, posted the article, Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. You can find her writing at newlinesmag.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Rasha Al-Akidi. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rasha. Thank you so much, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so glad that we are getting this perspective. I found in our archives an interview from 2008 with another Iraqi woman who was also raised during the uh, Saddam uh, era, and we are going to be playing that hopefully this week in our Patreon podcast. So I'm really glad that we're having this other, yet another perspective from this moment, especially 15 years on. You write... Flashbulb memories is a term coined by psychologists or for moments that stay with us, not just for months or years, but for decades. Not only do we continue to recall these events, but we also vividly memorize their wider context down to the most minute details, where we were, what we wore, who we were with, even smells and tastes. These moments have a lasting impact on the rest of our lives. The period from late 2002 until 2008 constitutes a stream of endless flashbulb memories for me. So what happens when you have these memories? Uh, as these were memories during the invasion and initial occupation of Iraq, do the feelings you had and the trauma possibly of those moments return? Is it like a form of, I, I, I hate to you know minimalize this, but is it like a, a form of PTSD? Uh, well, I think I definitely have a form of PTSD as, as most Iraqis uh, who live through these years. But it's more like you, you think of these, like you, I remember them, as if they were just happening, as if it was like as if they happened half an hour ago, um, and I can I can talk about them in detail way in more way better detail than I can talk about something that happened just yesterday, and uh, that's that's what I meant by that part. I think over the past twenty years, I've pretty much processed all of the trauma, so it's it's it does not impact me the same way. There are side effects um, that I did not talk about in in the essay just because they didn't fit. Um, of you know my 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 reaction um, when I hear a, a balloon just popping off, for example, or when I hear like a sudden sound or a plate breaking, I have more of a severe reaction than someone 
who just looks at it as an incident, um, I immediately kind of shiver for a few seconds. And um, it's it's not that I remember anything, but I just assume that that's related to some of the trauma. So like these these small things. Um, but it's around every anniversary when March March until around mid April, um, and April 9th was the day that the regime collapsed completely, because it gets talked about. It gets talked about on social media. Um, it, it, so I kind of have to relive it, and I have to also because of just the field of work that I chose or that kind of chose me is a better way of saying it. So I have to relive these events every single year. And uh, that of course doesn't, doesn't help with forgetting them, but it, it has helped in a way with processing them. Has it changed your reaction to war in general? For instance, when the, it, it doesn't matter which war it is, I'm just using this as an example, when the mm. Russia-Ukraine war broke out, or when any other, mm. any, you've, you've, whenever there's a sense that we might be on the verge of war, has it changed the way in which, I'm sure it's, it's changed the way in which you view and understand war, but it, has it changed the way in which you react to the possibility of war? Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, for, for one, um, there's this, the, the cheering on of war, uh, regardless of who's right or who's wrong and where I stand on it. Um, I don't think war is 100%, 100% always, always preventable. But I do think it should absolutely be the ultimate last resort after every single ounce of diplomacy and, and, and you know, back channels and everything has been completely exhausted. And even then, it should be planned out to the details that civilians are not harmed. I don't see that happening often, to be honest, in, in, in recent wars. But sometimes it, it, is the, it, it is the last option. But it's sometimes the, the cheering of war when it comes from people that are not impacted, this is always very triggering for me. I'm very pro-Ukraine, um, just you know, disclosure right there, um, and and I'm I'm not a huge fan of Putin or of of how Russia has been acting as of the last few decades. Uh, but when I see someone who's comfortably living, for example, somewhere in the West and isn't affected by it at all, just cheering on, something happens to me. I feel very upset uh, because having experienced bombs and and uh, sniper shots and an army, an invading army and, and how that feels, it's, it, is, it is very upsetting. But again, as an analyst and as a researcher, I also come to ter- I've come to terms now with that. It, 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 war, war is unpreventable in many ways. Uh, but in the case of like the Iraq war and some other wars, I believe that perhaps diplomacy was not fully, fully exhausted. There could have been another path. And uh, I only think of civilians when war happens, to be honest. I don't, I don't think of politics, which is why I try my, I don't write often on, I've, I haven't written, for example, on the war in Syria. I haven't written on Libya. I haven't written on Ukraine and in Russia uh, because I, I tend to think on civilians and I lose kind of that objectivity as, a, as an analyst and researcher. I just become too emotional when it comes to that. But civilians are always the ones who are the greatest casualties in war. Uh, it's never the people who are actually engaging in the war, the militaries involved. The civilians always outnumber the deaths and the wounded in yes. war. Why do you think when it does come to wartime, why does it lead to this cheering, this lack of solemnity that we should have about war? Why do we lose our focus from the civilians who are going to be the ones who suffer the most. But you look at who's cheering. Um, you know, it's, it mostly comes from people who live inside the United States 
or live in very, very safe and secure uh, countries in Europe. War never comes to them. These are the states that send armies to war. But war does not come to these territories. They're too far away. They're too secure. They're too vast for various reasons. So they, they don't experience it. They don't experience war. And, and you know, on the, on the flip side, sometimes I have conversations with anti-war activists. I know deep down inside they mean well. But they would say things like uh, the, the scrutiny and the, um, the way the government is interfering in our lives. We are by far worse than Iraq. This feels worse than probably how it felt under Saddam's regime. And I just look back and I say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it's, it's just the difference, the, the difference in experiences, our lives, because they're so, they're, they're, they're very, 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 they don't, they don't, you know, they're very divergent. They're, they're very different. So they have not experienced war, trauma, economic sanctions, what it feels like to live under a dictatorship. All these experiences are different. So when it comes to the choice of, okay, we're going to war, let's say, to topple a brutal, murderous dictator, um, it's however you look at it, it's tragic. There should be no cheering for or against. It's just a tragic, it's a tragedy. At, in, in some cases, it has to happen in order to save more lives. But it's, it is going to kill civilians. It's going to, it's going to probably destroy some infrastructure, perhaps um, institutional um, arrangement of that of that country will no longer exist. It's a tragedy. So the cheering on is the part that, again, against and with is is the part that's uh, when it comes from people who are not impacted on it. It's just because they're so disconnected from the realities on the ground in these places when war happens. And you know, here's the other thing: they have that option to switch off the TV or you know, sign off Twitter, and that war no longer impacts them whatsoever. Yeah, prices might go up a little bit here and there, but what's a few cents on how much oil uh, you're paying daily, or you know, a few cents on the bread and sugar and other groceries that you're buying? It's not that, it's not that big of a price to pay when you can just completely disconnect and not have it impact you, whereas the people living there are, are highly affected by it. So I think that's, I think that's the main reason, just disconnect. The disconnect, right? And the other thing that always bugs me about uh, when it comes to the rhetorical use of the word war is when, uh, let's say, a tornado comes through a town and the reporter or yep. the person on the ground will say, it's like a war zone. Or they'll make, oh, absolutely. The, they'll make this, uh, yeah. you know, uh, there'll be a shooting on the south side here in Chicago and they'll refer to a certain yep. community as being a war zone. So what happens when we use that term? When we, does that normalize and lead to a tolerance for war? I don't think it, it, I mean, does it normalize it? It normalizes it, and I don't know if it's normalized. How I look at it, again, as a Middle Eastern person and as an, as an Iraqi and someone who has lived through these wars, I look at it as some kind of Western exceptionalism. Let me, let me explain this a little bit. So um, when there's a mass shooting in the United States, and that's a highly, very specific American experience, it's, it only happens at the United States at this frequency and at this level. And I would see a reporter or someone saying, this shouldn't happen here. This thing happens in Iraq. It, it's dehumanizing to Iraqis. Actually, no, mass shootings don't happen in Iraq, believe it or not. There was a time in the 90s when every high school student in Iraq, um, during one of Saddam's crazy military campaigns, he handed each and every one of us a rifle. I kid you not. I, I was 16 and I had a rifle at home with bullets and there was no mass shooting. Now imagine that happening in the United States. I don't even want to think of the scenarios. But instead of saying, you know, let's own this. This is a specific American experience. Let we, there are so many incidents where a mass shooting can be compared to another mass shooting in the United States. They can say, oh, this is exactly what happened in Las Vegas. 
but they end up saying this looks just like Baghdad. Why? I feel it's more like this shouldn't happen to us because we're first world, we're you know exceptional, we're American. And the, the same net rhetoric, by the way, I hear in Europe too. Uh, whereas when it happens in the Middle East, oh, it's just the Middle East. Those those people, they they're in war all the time. That's how I that's how I interpret it. And it's the same thing with natural disasters, uh, whether it's tornadoes, floods. Um, the Middle East or brown people from the Middle East, they're always like the low bar of comparison. Always, we shouldn't be like them. We shouldn't live like them. We shouldn't have to have their experiences. Uh, that's how I, 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 that's how I understand it. That's how most people from my part of the world understand it. Sometimes we, we fight back. I've channeled this, I've challenged this narrative several times, many, many times on social media over the years. I've written about it too in different contexts. Um, it never gets easier to hear, but at some point you just, you know what, I, I can't keep having the same argument over and over again. Sometimes we just cho choose to ignore. But I, I do wish people were more sensitive with their words and how they use war and how they use even tragedy and trauma and how they describe it. You can't always compare it to people who are genuinely traumatized by war or have had these experiences. And uh, whether it's comparing yourselves to them or just kind of using it to look down on others. And, and that just leads me to another uh, thought that I just had about... Uh... I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation so far, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was this sense sense at the beginning of the Iraq War, even in, I would say up until 2008 and even a little bit later, uh, there was every so often you would hear people say, well, you know, there were 18 civilians killed today in Iraq, but, you know, there are 22 people shot on the south side of Chicago. There were more people died in the United States this week than died in the Iraq war. So it can't be that bad over there. That's the implication that they're trying to make. So what would you say to someone who says, hey, listen, more people died in the United States from, you know, our own gun violence than died in the Iraq war. So the Iraq war couldn't have been that bad. I would say to them, well, perhaps you should not have deployed 150,000 soldiers to Iraq and deployed them to Chicago instead and fixed your problems there instead of coming to ours, to our country. That's what I would have said to them, honestly. But that's, that's the answer I would think of. Yeah, I would think so too. So you write <laughs> that the US-led invasion of Iraq was arguably the second most significant event in the 21st century so far, surpassed only by the 9-11 attacks. Much of the subsequent turmoil and unrest in the Middle East and eventually the world can be traced back directly or indirectly to the invasion of Iraq and the collapse of its institutions. How do you see the U.S. war on Iraq causing not only regional but global turmoil? Because that does not seem to be recognized mm. by the media or the two yeah. major political parties. To what extent do you think Americans recognize that the U.S. war in Iraq has a legacy of not only causing turmoil and unrest regionally within the Middle East, but worldwide? Oh, no, absolutely. They don't have any idea. Um, I can give you a quick example. It was in 2000. Five, I think, 2006, not sure which year, but Oprah Winfrey had an Iraqi activist as a guest. Her name was Zainab Salbi. She's a very famous like activist here in, in Washington, D.C., I believe. And Zainab was, was talking about electricity. And this was, again, just two years after the invasion, two, three years after the invasion. And Oprah said something like, electricity? Didn't we fix that? Didn't we fix most of the problems? So that was, you know, there, the invasion happened. Some people were happy. Some people were not. And then America as a whole just moved on from it. Uh, it was featured in the news, like you said, just as, oh, people dying, not a big deal. People die every day everywhere. But the United States as a whole just kind of moved on and decided that, well, war is not the answer because we have our you know, young men and women now coming back in, in, in 
in, in caskets, like the American troops, that the casualty rates were high. So that's why there was a there was kind of a, a shift in the position towards war. No one was hearing it anymore. But Iraq and Iraqis were no longer part of, they just moved on from them. But how, you asked me how it was related. Um, so the invasion, the invasion happened, the regime was toppled. Um, our dear neighbor, Iran, uh, anti-American, anti-imperialist, part of the axis of evil, as George W. Bush called it, and also our other dear neighbor, Syria, under Bashar al-Assad, also part of the axis of evil. Um, they were, they were, they, their influence grew, first of all. The new Iraqi government was highly, was, was very, very pro-Iran, was friendly with Iran, something that you would think American politicians and war makers would have seen coming, but apparently they didn't. They thought if they toppled Saddam, the, the new Shia majority government in Iraq would be more pro-American, but no, they sided with Iran immediately. So Iran's influence grew. Syria was afraid that it might be the next target. George W. Bush was making these hints here and there because he thought that he had succeeded in Iraq. So what does what does Syrian President Bashar al-Assad do? He sort of he releases his uh, extremists from from prison, and he sends them to Iraq to carry out terrorist attacks. Which this is not me making things up. This has been proven. And extremists all, already they were already inside the country. Radical Islamists, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, these names, the early signs of ISIS, the early elements who later on created the Islamic State. They were they all gathered inside Iraq. So the, that turmoil happened. Iran's growing influence also in the country um, threatened our Gulf neighbors in the south. So you have Saudi Arabia now, the United Arab Emirates were also, were also threatened. And then also you have a disillusioned, traumatized, but also hopeful, to some extent desperate too. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but that's how I would describe the, this, the generation of young people who came to age around 2003. A dictator, a bloody dictator was toppled. And there were so many other dictators now. And it wasn't that they wanted a U.S. invasion, but they said, okay, we don't want America invading. Let's see if we can topple, if we can topple these regimes. Iraq was highly, highly had an impact on the Arab Spring. And we all know what happened with the Arab Spring. Regime started collapsing. There was the collapse of Libya. And then the Syrian war happened. Um, Bashar al-Assad, also a Ba'athist, just like Saddam, um, reacted in a way that Others did not react. He refused to give up. He he bombed. He basically bombed his own population, killing nearly half a million of them. All of this while happening, extremism, terrorism is on the rise. So you have Al Qaeda, you have ISIS now, um, and also so also what happened is you had this massive wave of immigration to Europe. We're talking millions and millions of individuals from the Middle East, not being welcomed by the Gulf countries, not being welcomed by other Arab or Middle Eastern countries, or even Muslim countries. They ended up going to Europe. What did this cause in Europe? It caused the rise of the far right. The, far of the, the rise of the far right in Europe preceded that in the United States. And it impacted the elections. You ended up having seen a rise in white nationalism. We need to secure our identities. We're not welcoming. We don't, we're not happy with this, with this wave of immigrants. Germany, Denmark, one of the first countries. That kind of also migrated into the United States, coinciding with the rise of terrorist attacks in America. ISIS was on the rise, like I said. ISIS was not contained in the Middle East. It ended up being global. It took its attack on American soil, on European soil. This all led to the rise of Trumpism, led to the rise of, again, far-right nationalism. And we saw how that affected the United States. So, like I said, if you trace it back, it kind of all relates to the regional turmoil that was caused by the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Now, if, I, if let's say, the U.S. invasion didn't happen, a lot of this would not happen. There would still be immigration. There would still be, I believe, a growing wave of, uh, Islamic extremism. And I say that with comfort. I am a Muslim woman, so there's no Islamophobia here. 
I do say that very confident in my choice of words. There would have been there would have been a rise of that, but it would not have been to this level. So I that was that was a sum that was a summary. But if I were to do it in a diagram, that's how I would have written it. So do you? This is a, a kind of a silly question, but do you think any of that was intentional? That they, they not that they could see that far into the future exactly what would happen. But do you think that this was part of the Iraq war? Was this part of some sort of initiative or program that the United States and its allies had in Europe to bring about a rise of the far right? No, no, absolutely not. No, I don't. I, I don't. It's not even talking about it as a conspiracy theory. I just think it was a war that was definitely misplanned. Not necessarily saying that the Bush administration had the best of intentions, but they did not want this bad outcome. It's just that they they relied on the wrong intelligence. They relied also on an extremely opportunist, corrupt, and just, I'll say it as it is, horrible, horrible people on in the Iraqi opposition who basically just wanted revenge. They didn't even want to rebuild their own country. I'm talking about Iraqis here who were abroad um, and who had left the country from the 50s and the 60s. They just wanted, you know, they wanted to topple Saddam to become Saddam. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the gist of it, basically. And the United States trusted them and trusted that America would be welcomed and that Iraqis were ready instantly for democracy. I, I believe that Iraqis do want democracy, but it has to be gradual. This is a country that's been under dictatorship for over 30 years. It's not going to understand. And they, we had no understanding of how politics works, as most, most people in the Middle East don't. So it, it, it should have been like a gradual change. They didn't plan for the war. They didn't plan for the fallout. They didn't predict. And I believe they were definitely shocked when they saw that that same opposition that relied 100% on the United States to topple the regime almost instantly ended up siding with, with Iran um, and, and for kind of taking on a, an anti-American resistance um, stand almost immediately. That was, that was a bit shocking. And, and everything went, you know, um, and they also did not predict perhaps the, the reaction from the Gulf states, which played at least in the first, years, first few years a very negative role too. Um, inflaming sectarianism through rhetoric, through incitement, and through individual funding of some of these terrorist groups. They did not predict the, 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 the rise in extremism to this extent. And they definitely could not have predicted um, that Bashar al-Assad would respond to his people in the way that he did, where it was just, it's, it's a continuing onslaught of, of, of hundreds of thousands of civilians leading to this mass immigration. I don't think it was, I, I don't believe for one second it was planned. It was just it because it was not planned. That's what happened. So was it a combination then of incompetence and arrogance? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a very good way to summarize it. So you write that uh, my childhood was uh, slightly different from that of the average Iraqi. I was born in the northern city of Mosul, but spent most of my childhood in a town just outside of Denver, Colorado. This was during Ronald Reagan's presidency when my father was studying for his doctorate degree. My family was not in Iraq during Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait and the resulting Operation Desert Storm. But we returned home to Mosul roughly one year later in 1992 and remained there until much later. And you also mentioned how one day you asked your mother why we had portraits of Saddam in our school, but we had never had pictures of Reagan or former President George H.W. Bush in our classrooms back in Colorado. My English and love for Western pop cult culture endured, but my early comprehension of politics gradually faded. By sixth grade, I was cheering for Baba Saddam, Father Saddam, like every other Iraqi child. 
yes, during my teens, I would stay up late and listen to the billboard charts on Voice of America, and I had a centerfold of Depeche Mode that I found in one of my late uncle's 1980s magazines. But when the radio stations began uh, speaking of an imminent U.S.-led coalition invasion, America and Britain became my enemies. They were sending troops to attack attack Iraq, and no amount of soft power was sufficient in this scenario to change my perspective. So how long did it take? What does it take to re-examine those impressions you had of Saddam? What did it take for you to have a reconsideration of who Saddam was? Oh, it, it took quite some time. And I, I, got, I, I fell into a lot of, of, of loopholes with <laughs> when this happened because um, in the instant collapse, um, it wasn't that, because I always knew Saddam was bad, but like I said, he was like our bad guy. And you end, I felt there was so much injustice of the war as, as a young adult that I didn't necessarily want Saddam back, but the whole thing was just, I, thought, I felt it was unfair. So that led to com- the complete, my complete rejection of the political process. Um, even though I, I voted in the first elections, I voted, I voted in every elections, but I did not like the people in power. And I started thinking when I saw the outcomes of the war, I started thinking that, you know, maybe some of the things that Saddam did Maybe I can't blame him. I kind of understand now why he was oppressive to certain minorities or, or to, to a certain group of people, because these people are traitors. And the reason also, because my hometown of Muslim, uh, uh, a Sunni majority, basically, we were, we were, we're an isolated city. I don't know if there's a U.S. Um, um, analogy to that, but we're not very, very, very welcoming. We're welcoming to individuals, but we're not welcoming to new cultures, to new to different sects, to uh, to different identities. We have a very, very unique, very specific makeup, very specific identity. And it wasn't until I, I started talking to other Iraqis who were very, very different from me, then I realized that, oh, these people are wonderful and they're great. How, how, come, how, how come I never had this relationship with Iraqis before? And I understood because Saddam did separate us. He did isolate us. He did use a policy of... of um, of, of treating people differently. And it wasn't until I understood my privilege as a Sunni, as a Sunni Arab, at least on, on my passport, uh, that's, that's what's written. I understood how privileged I was versus other groups. That's when I started reconsidering. Uh, I would say that there, is some, there are some parallels between being a Sunni Arab in Iraq or in the Middle East in general, and between, between being a, a cisgender white individual in the West. Uh, there are privileges that even if you grow up poor, even if you grow up feeling unlucky, because we suffered under the sanctions, we lived in poverty, so I didn't feel privileged then. But because of my identity, I also wasn't targeted. Uh, there, weren't not necess- there weren't any discriminating policies against me. And that in itself is a privilege. It wasn't until I, I identified that is when I started seeing. And the, this happened around 2006. That was the first time I questioned myself when I was telling a, a friend who I found out turned out to be actually Shia. Iraqi. And I said, I was telling her things were better before. And I said, well, we didn't even know what being a Shia was because we didn't separate. She said, no, you didn't know what being a Shia was because you didn't have to. And that is the definition of privilege. We are the majority in Iraq, yet you didn't know we existed. How is that not privilege? And that kind of was like a flash, that was like a flash moment for me, like, wow, actually, yeah, she's right. And that's when I started re-examining everything and, and looking more objectively at the mass graves and and not believing that this was all propaganda and that and I started seeing yeah Saddam was absolutely awful which is why when I relay my experience I always say I understand why so many in Iraq were happy when the regime fell 
and why so many in Iraq also welcomed the United States. Just as I know that so many in Syria would welcome the, the collapse of, of the Syrian regime now because of the horrendous crimes they did, and unspeakable, unspeakable crimes that do, to some extent, I believe, I mean, it's mass, it's just mass war crimes that this re, the former regime committed towards Iraqis over the years. And I, I, I get their experiences and their feelings are definitely valid. Or, um, I don't know where they stand today, but it's, it's like it, all, not all Iraqis had the same experience also under the regime. And once I was able to acknowledge that and kind of reconcile, um, I understood it's, that's why I say it's not a black and white situation. And the question of it was better before or is it better now is just simply not applicable. Uh, you can't, that's, a, that's an NA answer. It does not apply. You cannot ask that objectively. That's really interesting, that idea of privileged denialism, because I see that so often here in the United States, you know, when people just don't want to acknowledge that they have any kind of privilege whatsoever. And mm-hmm. when they do acknowledge, when they finally realize that they do have privilege, they do seem to have this kind of epiphany-like moment that you were just discussing. We are speaking with yeah. Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, Rasha Al-Akidi, who posted the article Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. You can find her writing at newlinesmag.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, Rasha Al-Akidi, A-Q-E-E-D-I. You write that on March 17, 2003, U.S. President George W. Bush announced a 48-hour window during which uh, Saddam and his family could surrender if they were to leave a military attack would be avoided, though an invasion would still occur to locate and destroy the weapons of mass destruction that were alleged to have been in Iraq's possession. The idea was to give the impression that the Bush administration, that the United States was not at war with the people of Iraq, but Saddam, that the, the war was his fault. And another thing that Bush would say is we are not at war with Islam. We are at war with Saddam Hussein or with terrorists. That that all Saddam had to do was leave or all the Iraqi people had to do was rise up and throw him out of office. Was that the impression that you got when President Bush told Saddam he had 48 hours to leave, that the U.S. was on the side of the Iraqi people and they were just simply against their leader? Uh, no, because he said, because it was also confirmed that there would be an invasion. Now, had it been, we want Saddam to leave and the war will not happen, we will not invade, that would have been different. That would have been very, very different. And I think it, for, for, a, for a short period of time, there was a discussion that um, amongst the adults in my family and, and other places that if Saddam left and everything stayed put, like it's just him, his family's entourage, if they left, they were given, I don't know, asylum somewhere, whatever, later on trial, we didn't care. But everything else stayed in place. And then if there were weapons of mass destruction, this way the United Nations and other organizations, um, and maybe even US experts, they can come into the country um, not even as occupiers, but just as experts, and maybe search for these weapons now that the regime is, is gone. That would have that, that that sounded great. But then when there was a confirmation that no, the army, the U.S. army, will still invade, uh, that means that there's still going to be war. That Saddam might surrender, but the Iraqi army was not instantly going to. There would have been some kind of fight because, you know, people don't like occupation. That's it's very very simple. Uh, so it just sounded like gaslighting, to be honest. That's that's all it sounded like to us. And if anything, um, it just you know it just made us fearful that you know, not fearful, confident. Okay, there's going to be a war. There's a possibility that we not we won't survive this. But we also had no way to predict the outcome. Um, that's how blindsided also we were. That's how or sorry, the the correct word would be brainwashed. That's how brainwashed we were. There were moments where we thought Saddam could actually win, 
and Iraq's army could, you know, hold this attack for us for to a point where America might surrender. Um, that's how disillusioned we were, and that's how delusional, sorry, we were um, when it came to Saddam's power and what he could do. We all thought he definitely had had a plan, um, just because Saddam can't lose. That's it's kind of inwired in our brains that this man, he he just can't lose. He's always going to be there. And it's again, it's it's very hard to explain this to to someone who, uh, to people who have not grown up in a dictatorship and have, have not experienced that upbringing where your leader is always going to be there because there's simply no replacement. He's kind of like this mini god on earth. Uh, I know it does it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's genuinely how we felt. And you talk about how there was organized corruption under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. And then afterwards, once the United States invaded and occupied Iraq, there was the chaotic sense of freedom. So the choice seemed to be chaotic freedom or organized corruption. Since the the war has happened, have you ever heard anybody waxing nostalgic, not just for Saddam Hussein, but waxing nostalgic for organized corruption, organized dictatorship, yeah. rather than the oh, chaotic yeah. world. Uh, yes, absolutely. And you see this popping up. Interesting also with amongst the generation that did not live under Saddam. So the people born after 2003 who are now in their 20s, or people who remember, were born in the late 90s but don't remember a lot about the regime, didn't experience the brainwashing, was, were not even in elementary school yet. So you find them finding older videos and, and pictures from the archives of the 80s, of the 90s, even during the economic sanctions. And they would post these photos and saying, life looked amazing back then. We wish we could go back. And when people who lived under Saddam, even those who were not happy with the U.S. occupation or are not happy to, with the regime today, we try to explain to them, you know, it wasn't this black, it wasn't this good, actually. You know, we, we struggled, we did this, and they said, oh, it's still better. It's still better than, than it was. And I, I wrote an article about this, I believe, in, I forget what year it was. I think it was 2015, saying nostalgia for Saddam. It was about this kind of nostalgia and where it was coming from. And it actually even comes from the group of the ethnic groups and the religious groups that were oppressed uh, by Saddam. There's there's definitely pushback, but there's never been a discussion, a genuine discussion as to why these narratives happen. Because the people, when they, they the young people in particular, when they say this, they're told by the older generations, you you have no idea what you're talking about. You didn't live under this dictatorship. You don't know how hard it was, how awful it was. Instead of saying, okay, why did they come to this conclusion? Why are they going back looking for something? They feel something is lost. And we realize later on when you talk to them, I try to talk to them as much as I can. It's not necessarily the comforts of life. They say, we know you were poor. We know living standards were hard. Um, but living standards here are hard too, unless you're, if you're not from the middle upper class. The upper middle classes and the upper classes in Iraq, if you're not related to someone in government where you have money and you have a permanent job and you have a good income. but what we what they saw, what they see in these archives of the 80s and 90s is a nation, is a country, is an identity that they feel is lost today. They don't have, they don't feel that, they don't feel that association with Iraq today. It doesn't feel like it's their country. Whereas when they look at these old photos, it does feel like a country. It does feel like a nation. And uh, I, I genuinely think that Iraqis need to have that, that conversation with this, you know, th th this coming, th this generation and the generations that are coming because they're, if they get to a point where they idolize dictatorship or they feel life under dictatorship is perhaps a better option than having elections every four years, I think if if any if there's a testament to the failure of war and the failure of democracy, it's that if you have generations believing that dictatorship 
organized dictatorship is a better option. So do you think the war led to an undermining of democratic or uh, democracy beliefs within the Absolutely. Iraqi people? Absolutely. And uh, I wouldn't say as bad as Saddam. I don't think any other regime in the Middle East or the region is bad as Saddam. But every Iraqi, uh, not every, I would say a significant number of Iraqis wish they had the leaderships of, of Saudi Arabia. They wish they had leaders. They, Iraqis love MBS. I know that sounds crazy. But the younger Iraqis in particular, they, they do admire him. Um, they admire the, the, the ruling system of the United Arab Emirates, of Qatar. These countries are living um, as from what for what they see, they're you know they're they're, they're flourishing, they're they're developed, their infrastructure is great, um, and they say you know what we don't need they don't have elections, they don't have democracy, but they're living. We go to these countries, we go to these places when we uh, for for tourism reasons, we go there when we you know want to have a change of, of of scenery. We go to Dubai because it's great. Why can't we live like this? Uh, we don't need elections. So I, I believe that's an undermining and. You also can hear this, and it's not just uh, not just in Iraq. You hear this to some extent in Egypt. You hear this in you hear this also in in, in Libya. You hear this in you know like now with the Egyptian government with with Sisi. Yes, journalists are arrested. Are, are arrested. There's no free speech. The economy is collapsing. But for some people, they're saying, well, you know, it's we're, we're safe and we're secure. It's better than how it was under like Morsi, who was elected. Um, I, I do feel that it was the war and the outcome of it. And also countries are saying, no, we don't want democracy if it's going to lead to something like like Iraq. Iraq is such a bad example for what can happen when you do have elections. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's that binary. Again, it's that question of was it better before or after, which I believe is inaccurate and should never be asked. But yeah, there is that sense now that this war felt so bad that democracy is not is no longer seen as a as a better option. And also, you know, some people do believe, I personally believe it's because these young people have grown up with some relative free speech. Um, they didn't grow up like I did. They don't have to forcefully cheer for others. Um, they're not as brainwashed as I did. They understand the world has better options. They also have a sense of privilege that they don't appreciate. Um, so if they had lived under dictatorship, they would think differently. But again, still, like I was saying, it's not the outcome. I believe that pro-democratic activists who supported this war were, were looking for. So this was supposed to be a war to bring democracy to the Middle East, and instead it seems to be have turned into a war on democracy. Everybody was very excited when Iraqi people did get the vote. Um, you voted, as you were saying. Yeah. Uh, what? How does getting the right to vote fall short when you want to have a democracy? Uh, you know, at, at the time, and I, I still, I still feel that you know, in, a, in a country like Iraq, in a place like the middle, like the Middle East, it was great. I voted for the more secular um, candidate at the time, and I, seeing that I got to challenge the more like who I felt in, in Mosul at the time, the, the majority of the city voted for the Muslim Brotherhood aligned uh, political party, and I've never been conservative, I've always kind of been more liberal, so when I voted for the secular party, I was able to challenge them, they made fun of me, they're like, oh, your, your candidate is never going to win, you might be the only person who voted in the city, but when the results came, and he actually had um, significant significant percentage of votes i was like yeah that's awesome this is great it felt wonderful and i still feel around election times that you know at least here now that i'm in the united states when i see iraqis going to like different places to vote as in in uh, vote from like from, from diaspora um there is there is that sense of uh, pe people are happy with it 
but inside the country, no. Like, just look at the, how num- how the number how the numbers have fallen from seventy percent of the population voting to sixty percent to later on fifty nine, and I believe probably below fifty five in the last elections. Like, youth, youth, youth in particular, they're they're boycotting because they they're not happy with the candidates. They don't believe in the political process. So it's not just it's not just the voting. It's what happens after the system that was set in Iraq is very very hard to crack. So it's basically the same political parties and the same names and faces are kind of just recycled every other every four years, um, and it's the same group of people. It's really hard to to enter the Iraqi parliament as an opposition that can be effective and can force change and can force the other parties to act to to, to just perform better. It's it, it's the same group of people. That's why I call them like a, a, a network of of thugs. Basically, it's kind of like the mafia. They're in control of the government. They're only they only have self interests and they're not serving the country properly and it's very hard through the ballots it's impossible almost to make a breakthrough um, unless every single person voted uh, because yes there there is corruption in votes some votes are forged I'm one hundred percent sure but if every single person voted for let's say a, a good candidate which doesn't exist also in the country because if you are not corrupted in Iraq and you try to enter the political process, you might also be targeted by a country that is now basically being ruled by militias. There, that's why there's so much assassinations of activists and of, of free thinkers and of, of writers and of journalists. It, it happens constantly. So it's hard, to, it's hard to create, to affect a change in the system through the ballots. And this is where democracy also fails. So you point out, as I was mentioning during the introduction, that uh, the better the devil you know than the devil you don't when it comes to Saddam, and we couldn't even fathom an alternative to Saddam. What did you fear could be worse than Saddam? Is what is happening today in Iraq, is this the fear that you had? If I'm going to be completely honest, no. No, the fear I had was the idea of an occupation, and I do say this in the article, is that the U.S. Army coming in and basically just killing everyone and um, a a non-ending constant bloodbath where it's basically a neighborhood attacking neighborhood, something akin to what would happen, let's say in the dark ages. That was my worst fear. And that's, that's the only, I think if I were to ever envision an alternative, that's how I, I pictured the alternative. It's not like that in Iraq today. And this is not to say that things are great there. No, it's a country that's basically only surviving because it has oil and this oil is being made to pay salaries. And this, the money from the salaries being circulated within the country, so people are living day by day. It's it's that's that's basically how it describes life in Iraq. But it's it's not a consistent bloodbath. Some people are actually thriving there. Some people are not. Um, it's it's not the outcome. It's not. It's definitely not necessarily a better outcome. I don't know if I could say it's worse. Like I said, from my experience, uh, had I stayed in Iraq, it would have been worse for me. I left, and I left because of the war. Also indirectly because of the war. And my life is a lot better um, because of because I left because I immigrated, so I, I don't have a say on how every single Iraqi feels um, now. But it, no, the outcome that I was thinking of was a lot a lot bloodier, but I still would not describe the war as a success. You also say I'm one of the lucky ones. My life took an yep. undeniably better turn because of the war, and for that I carry enormous guilt, which I doubt will fade anytime soon. What was the better, well, the better turn your life took is what you're doing today, the analysis that you're giving us today. But why do you feel guilt? Yeah, survivor's guilt is real. It's a real thing. Um, 
I can give you an example right now as I'm, so I'm, I told you when we did the sound check, I'm sitting in the lobby of my apartment building, which is lovely. If I open, if I just open the, the side door, there's this, this lovely patio, a lot of lovely trees, streets are clean, the air is fresh. I can't enjoy these very basic small things living in, and I live in, in a place called Fairfax in, um, in, in Virginia, which is beautiful. One of the best places to live, I think, in the United States. I can't enjoy these small things without thinking that my mom and dad are not. They don't get to enjoy these things. My, my brother doesn't get to enjoy these things. His children don't. I think about my friends. Um, I have a friend I'll be talking about in the future more in, in more detail. Um, we went to high school together, went to college together. We were neighbors. We spent so much time together. We, our birthdays are exactly three months apart. Uh, we, there were times where we, we shared headscarves because I used to wear a hijab in Muslim. She taught me how to pin her, you know, my headscarf. She, she married uh, way before I ever did. And um, her husband was a pharmacist, well-respectful man. And he turned out to be an ISIS militant. She didn't know that. And um, he wasn't even that religious. He was not an extremist, but he just identified with, with the militants, with ISIS. She wanted a divorce. She couldn't get a divorce. She stayed in Mosul the entire time. And when the military operations happened, she was killed along with two of her children. And I remember her every day. Her name was Iman. And I, li I like to say her name. Iman and I, like I said, we lived five houses apart and we went to the same school. And we went to the same university, four years of college together. That's how her life ended. And that's, this is how my life is today. So I could have been her. I really could have been her. The only difference was I got a death threat from an extremist group, which forced me to change my track, the, my, the, the track that I was on and made me say, I cannot stay in this, in this country anymore. And I worked towards my goal to leave. She didn't because she had commitments now. That was the only difference. So the war did not impact her. If anything, the, the, war, the war didn't impact her in the ways that it affected me. But it turned out for me possible. So I do feel guilty. I, I feel guilty that I survived and she didn't. Um, I feel guilty that my, my life is, I would say, comfortable and wonderful. Whereas hers was cut short, whether it was through marrying someone who ended up being an extremist and, and then knowing that she could not protect her children and then dying so soon that they couldn't even find her body. How can I not feel guilty? Just a couple more questions for you, Rasha. Yeah. Um, you write that as the relative calm that followed the first few weeks of regime change gradually descended into violence and American soldiers were being targeted daily, the human side of the Americans became harder to see. That's what you witnessed when you first engaged or first saw American soldiers, smiling American soldiers who were your age, and you saw them as just humans. But you add mm. that there was a cruel, almost demonic side to some of the soldiers who knew and saw nothing but vengeance. How quickly did military people turn cruel? For what what were they seeking vengeance? Do you think was this all just about nine so, eleven? No, no, not because of, in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, up until mid two thousand four, like a year later in Mulsun, in my hometown, soldiers were comfortable enough to walk around without their weapons. That's how much they trusted civilians. They would come to the university. They would chat with us. They were extremely nice. Um, I didn't talk to any one of them at the university, but I would see them all the time. They were happy. They'd be like in their posts. Uh, one vision I would never forget, I was waiting for my a car pickup um, in my senior year. And there was this young woman, she was in full military gear. Her weapon was just rested on the side and she was reading a book. Like she was very chilled, her legs were up. You know, she was, it seemed like she was on vacation apart from the helmet that she had on. 
so they were they were okay. I think what happened was around mid two thousand four when um, Saddam's son Uday and Fosay when they were targeted, they were killed in in Mosul, and it was a remember it was also not too far away from our home. So I do remember the the uh, the bombings of the house and then the entire city was under curfew for a few days and we learned later that Saddam's sons were killed. They were in a house in Mosul, which meant that they were they had some kind of network in the city that was was you know basically hiding them um, and and serving them. And that we also heard that they were ratted out by the man who they had trusted. Uh, so it was it was a very, very dark time. After that military operations were ramped up against US troops. We, I don't believe these were necessarily extremists. These were, these were just angry Iraqis, probably nationalists, probably part of Saddam's former intelligence. And they started targeting the US military with bombs, you know, also sniper attacks. It was after that. So when more, the more the US soldiers fell, they realized that they couldn't trust the people and every Iraqi became a potential enemy. That's when it, so that's when it changed. That's when it changed around uh, 2004. And this is when we, saw, we started seeing um, the disregard for Iraqi life um, in in every every shape and form. One last question for you, Rasha. We've been speaking with Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, Rasha Al-Akidi, who posted the article Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. You can find her writing at newlinesmag.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Rasha Al-Akidi. That's A-Q-E-E-D-I. One last question for you, Rasha, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So, of course, my question from hell was, but it's not going to be anymore, are the Iraqi people better or worse off without Saddam? You've already (laughs) pointed out that that is not applicable whatsoever. So let me ask you something else. You write how you realized that there was nothing to fix in Iraq after uh, visiting more recently. And perhaps I should not attempt to. The Iraq I knew was long gone, and it is no longer my battle to fight because I no longer live there, nor do I plan on returning. So Mm. can Iraq be as you say, fixed. Is there a sense among Iraqis in the country that it cannot be fixed, that the Iraqi political system is now beyond repair and that the only thing that can fix it may be some sort of uprising? Uh, I, I, I struggle to answer on their behalf, but I feel for the, the new generations who've experienced some sense of freedom, some taste of the world, because they now have at least the ones who can afford to, they, they have the option to travel and see how other people are living. But, and they also don't have the option of immigration. Uh, there's, Iraqis cannot seek asylum anymore, even under extreme circumstances like death threats. It's very hard for them. So they need to fix the country. They have to. And uh, I, I believe in them. I believe they will find ways. I might not, I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to see it, but I believe that the future generations, they will have the tools, the means, and the capacity to to fix it, to make it a better place than it is today. I do believe in that. Everybody should check out your writing at New Lines Magazine. This is really an amazing article, and we spoke a lot in generalities. The specifics of your experience are absolutely uh, uh, just amazing. So (laughs) people should check out your writing over at newlinesmag.com. Rasha, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. This is... I was really looking forward to this conversation. It was actually better than I thought it was going to be. So thank you so much (laughs) for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck, for inviting me. You are here, and this is hell. 
this is not the media. This is hell because I can, and I can, you can tell that this is not the media because I can guarantee you that you did not hear an interview like that anywhere during the 20th anniversary commemoration of the war on Iraq last month. If what you just heard from Russia and her eyewitness account of being an Iraqi in Iraq during the illegal, immoral, unethical invasion and occupation by the United States, please show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support. Last year at this time, I was still bedridden. I was still recovering from a life-saving surgery that I had and 15 days of being in the hospital I was still having a lot of uh, problems getting out of bed or even walking down my hallway and during that time we lost quite a deal of our Patreon patrons a lot of Patreon subscribers just stopped being subscribers while I was in the hospital and we still have not got those Patreon subscribers back yet we still are down from where we were when I got deathly ill last year so please show your support by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. During our Thursday, April 6th Patreon podcast, after playing This Is Hell, the Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, all last week, I couldn't help think about cognitive dissonance, the disconnect between our words and our actions that we must engage in under capitalism, which is something that has been mentioned many times on the show and during Patreon monologues. I also couldn't stop thinking about how denialism is such a part of our world today when it comes to the pandemic. But listening back to those discussions during the first few weeks of the COVID-19 virus outbreak, I was also struck by our own individual as well as our collective lack of recognition that our actions actually do have consequences and how, again, under capitalism, we must disconnect those actions from consequences or we would all either revolt and overthrow the cruel system imposed upon us or just keep doing what we're doing, going about our daily business, normalizing and tolerating a brutality within which we fully participate on a daily, if not a moment-to-moment basis in order to survive. Yes, our words are disconnected from and do not reflect our actions. Yes, we exist in deep denial, ranging from climate change to deforestation, causing pandemics, and everything in between. But we also live in a world where we not only disconnect our actions from their consequences, but we also deny there are any consequences whatsoever to our actions. Which is just yet another reason this is hell. Also on Patreon. On our most recent Patreon podcast, last Thursday, we shared an interview from 15 years ago last week, an interview with the war nerd himself, Gary Brecker. Gary and past This Is Hell guest Mark Ames have been posting the uh, Radio (laughs) Radio War Nerd podcast since 2015. The conversation that we played was from April 2008, just two months before Gary's book titled, you guessed it, War Nerd was published. At the time, his publisher said Gary is a part war commentator, part angry humorist. Brecker invades against pieties of all stripes, Liberian generals, Dick Cheney, UN peacekeepers, the neocons, and the massive incompetence of military powers. A provocative free thinker, Brecker finds much to admire in the most unlikely places, and not always for the most pacifistic reasons. The Tamil Tigers, the Lebanese Hezbollah, 
the Danes of a thousand years ago, and so on, across the globe and through the centuries. Crude, scatological, yet deeply informed, Brecker provides a radically different, completely unvarnished perspective on the nature of warfare. In the conversation we shared on a Patreon from almost five years ago to the from five years to the date of the beginning of the war on Iraq, Gary talked to us about an article he had just posted titled "Who Won Iraq's Decisive Battle." The Bush administration was insisting the U.S. had won that battle. The Iraqi opposition said they won the battle. In the end, and as Gary predicted during that conversation, neither side won, and the only winner, if you want to call anyone that, in the war on Iraq was Iran, but you can only hear about the next step in Thatcherite thinking, like there is no alternative and there is no society, and that would be there are no consequences, and a 15-year-old conversation with the war nerd that accurately predicts what would happen over the next 15 years in Iraq. Sign up at patreon.com slash thisishell and get that weekly bonus podcast. Subscribers also get special perks like first crack at every week's question from hell, behind-the-scenes news about the show, including who we are considering as upcoming guests, and we'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment, and a brand-new feature that makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. Patreon patrons, I don't know why I'm doing this, but they can now ask me... Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, that's me, a question from hell of their own. Every week after we play an interview from our 26-year archive of shows that cannot be found anywhere else online but at our Patreon page at this moment, you can find a whole bunch of shows from 2014 on it, thisishell.com, but anything from before 2014, that all that stuff is at the Patreon page. But following the interview, the classic interview that we play, whoever that day's producer is will choose one of the questions from hell from our Patreon patrons. And without me having any knowledge of the question beforehand, I will then be asked your question from hell for me, which again, you can only hear if you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And right out of the gate, right out of the box, Patreon patrons had a very hellish question for me. Listener Andrew J. asked... With the loss of producer Lindsay Gorey, who brought a much-needed female voice and perspective to the show. And by the way, don't worry, she's doing fine. I don't know if I'd say it was a loss. <laughs> I don't want to make people think that something horrible happened to her. Something good happened to her. She found something better. Uh, he continues, this is hell has returned to being exclusively a sausage fest. What steps are this is hell and you, Chuck, taking to actively recruit a woman or a woman or a woman identifying individual to fill producer vacancies. So to hear my full answer, you have to subscribe to our Patreon podcast. But I had the exact same conversation on the exact same topic the night before our Patreon podcast with former producer Daphne Augustin, who joined us for This Is Hell Office Hours, a weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think that happens every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. We really enjoyed having Daphne as a producer on the show, as we did having Lindsay on as a producer. And before that, Kate O'Donnell was absolutely fantastic as a producer on the show. However, so far, we have had four people tell us they are interested in our current open producer position, and they're all freaking dudes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I am a dude. No matter what demographic category you happen to belong to, we want you to join us here on This Is Hell. 
We are an equal opportunity employer. And more than that, having a variety of voices and perspectives is a great addition to our content. However you identify yourself, we want you here on This Is Hell. Yes, This Is Hell is again looking for new producers. And who knows, maybe our new producer is you. If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Thursday each week, and believe in what we do on the show, you too can be part of our crew. Specifically, we are currently looking for a producer who can cover Tuesdays every week. However, our schedule is flexible and other days may be open. The duties of producer include confirming guests in the days leading up to the show and helping the guests with logistics to put them on air. You also do a guest sound check 15 minutes before airtime, run the board during the live stream and recording. Following the show, producers edit whatever is necessary, post the show on all our social media platforms, back up the show on our external hard drive, and finally prepare the show for distribution to any number of our five media outlets. The whole process should take about three, three and a half hours. We also reward producers for their services, which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. You will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote and endorse. Do you already do a podcast but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement, bedroom, or dining table? Then join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you like the show so much that you actually want to contribute to the work of doing This Is Hell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is who would you like to see indicted and why? I love how people uh, accidentally say indicated. Oh, no. Did you know Trump was indicated? He was totally indicated. Totally indicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. On Patreon, we have NYC M and A hole. Uh, why just indicted? Why not ask whom I'd like to see up against a wall out in the courtyard? Wow. <laughs> wow. Again, yeah. right out of the gate. Right out of the, the gate. Man, <laughs> question uh, from hell answers <laughs> get hellish and hellish. Uh, Greg G says me for reading this question in a very lewd manner <laughs> john p says every president since the end of world war ii in absentia as necessary for unleashing on the world a rolling holocaust in its bloodthirsty quest for total global dominance boy and we'll be talking a lot about that tomorrow <laughs> on tomorrow's show wow and how yeah andy h says ram DeSantis's mom you know why <laughs> Savage. Uh, Yairo M says, Dick and Bush for Iraq and Afghanistan. Obama for Rahm Emanuel and that tan suit. (laughs) I forgot about the tan suit. I forgot about the tan suit, too. But uh, indicting him for just bringing in Rahm Emanuel. I guess. I'm totally for that, you know. (laughs) Uh, Peter J says, the ham sandwich. Exclamation point, I might add. And Dean T says, Homo sapiens for the crime of evolving consciousness. 
<laughs> wow. And that's what we have on that, Patreon. That sounds like a class action suit, I think. It sure does. <laughs> Sign me up. A class war action suit. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's shows when we are announcing the, this week's winner of the question from hell. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Will, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff tacitly testifies the unheard silent testimony of the mute voiceless. Hmm, that sounds like uh, a John Cage piece, and it's going to be like 11 <laughs> minutes of silence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, we posted on our Patreon page around a dozen suggestions we had and we've had for upcoming guests on the show, and we asked subscribers on Patreon to tell us who they want to hear on the show or if they had any ideas of their own and that are not on the list. Todd H. commented, Bart Ehrman, author of Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end, for sure have him on as a guest. I think this discussion would shine a light on how certain people are using American foreign policy to bring about an end of the world they see in the book of the Bible, but wasn't an interpretation of revelations until fairly recently. So thanks, Todd. Bart has been on the show twice in the past, and both those interviews are currently available here, or not here, but at our Patreon page. I know he was on once to talk about his book, Misquoting Jesus, but off the top of my head, I can't remember what we discussed during his second appearance on the show. Andrew M. writes that, while I think the world cannot hear enough about Jackson Rising's work and vision, that's the organization Cooperation Jackson and from Jackson, Mississippi, I'm really aching for the consultancy industry to please, please, please disappear. Looking at you, Mayo Pete Buttigieg. So the Mazzucato and Collington book is calling to me extra loud. Andrew is referring to Jackson Rising Redux, Lessons on Building the Future and the Present, which is edited by Kali Akuno and Matt Meyer. Kali was on our show in 2017 with Ajamu Nanguaya, who uh, they were on to discuss Jackson Rising, the struggle for economic democracy and self-determination in Jackson, Mississippi. And during last week's office hours, not only did I see Daphne, which was awesome, and we talked about having women producers on the show, but a listener from Jackson, Mississippi, actually joined us and gave us his first-hand account of what his life is like in Jackson today. And it sounds like it's the white supremacist war on Reconstruction all over again. As for the other book Andrew mentioned uh, by a past guest on This Is Hell, Mariana Mazzucato, and... Uh, Rosie Collington. That's the big con, how the consulting industry weakens our businesses, infantilizes our governments, and warps our economies. Mark C. comments on Patreon, I'd be quite interested in an interview with Na Oyo E. Quate, author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food, From Black Exclusion to Exploitation. Fast food as exploitation seems like a really rich and interesting history to discuss. And Mark... We have some good news for you that Will will be sharing shortly. Meanwhile, Zach simply writes, Quinn Slobodian, please. Quinn's new book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Greg G. seconds both the big con and crack up capitalism. He adds, I have an obvious bias when it comes to those topics. And while Will has some good news for Mark C. about Naoyo, Zach and Greg, I've also got good news for you. We have confirmed Quinn Slobodian for an interview on Wednesday, April 26th, our final 
interview of the month of April. Zach and Greg, that's Quinn Slobodian. Crack Up Capitalism, Wednesday, April 26th. We also have uh, Bart Ehrman being seconded. And a third vote for Mariana Mazzucato. Andy H. writes, I love Ehrman as I am a consultant. I would also be interested in the big con. Speaking of upcoming guests, Will, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our next guest is Catherine Yon Ebright, who serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, who authored the study Secret War, in which Catherine explains how security corporation programs have led U.S. forces into unauthorized hostilities alongside foreign partners. There's actually a reason why there is a forever war going on, and it's because of the 2001 passing of the AUMF, which has led to an indoctrination of a forever war that the United States has been launching against basically anybody who we want to. Who else is going to be on this week's set of shows? Uh, We have Na Oyo Equate, author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation. Na Oyo is Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Human Ecology at Rutgers. She is author of Burgers in Blackface, Anti-Black Restaurants Then and Now, as well as the editor of The Street, a photographic field guide to American inequality. Which all sound fantastic. I really want to see that photographic field guide to American inequality. Also coming up later this week, we will have this week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merch that they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. First, thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to Dan for sitting in. Dan K. I don't want to reveal anybody's names at this point, but Dan was in here as the first person who was being interviewed in the process of possibly becoming a producer here on This Is Hell. See? We told you. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>